0: Father, it is hard not to get excited on a day like this. That as we sing to you as we've been sung to, as we read your scriptures, as we wrestle each in our own way with the implications of Jesus' resurrection, it's hard not to get excited. Pray that as we open your book right now, as we look at what you have revealed to us and explore a bit of that account that was read earlier to us, that you'd help us to understand it rightly. May we not miss the profound implications for our lives today. More than anything, Lord, may we walk away from here today with hope, hope that can only come from you and your risen Son, Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, years ago, Stephen Covey wrote a groundbreaking book on leadership that many of you read called The Seven Habits of Highly Effective People. And I can remember reading that book years ago and a phrase jumping off the page that I'd never heard before that since has kind of shaken my world. The phrase is called a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift. You might remember reading about that. And I want to explain to you what he meant by a paradigm shift because I think it has everything to do with the Easter event itself, this idea of the resurrection of Jesus. You see, simply defined, folks, a paradigm is simply the way that you and I see the world. Not in terms of our visual sight, mind you, but in the terms of perceiving, of interpreting, of understanding. It's a mental or emotional grid, if you will, a map that each of us has inside of us that we use to filter all the information that comes our way in life and it helps us make sense of it. Experts in cognitive theory refer to a paradigm as a mental model a theory, a perception, an assumption, a frame of reference. It doesn't matter what you call it. They all mean the same things. It's simply the thoughts and feelings that you and I have about the world that cause us to view the things around us in a particular way. And make no mistake, we all have different paradigms. Paradigms are very diverse, and yet they're very powerful in how each of us are going to view the reality around us and even the events that happen in our lives. In fact, listen to how Covey describes this in his book. He says, each of us has many, many maps in our heads, which can be divided into two main categories, maps of the way things are or realities and maps of the way things should be or values. We interpret everything we experience through these mental maps. We seldom question their accuracy. We're usually even unaware that we have them. We simply assume that the way we see things is the way that they really are or the way that they should be. They're called paradigms. And each of us has them. And they're as numerous and diverse as there are people in this world. And they are powerful in how we see the world around us. Now, once you understand this, then you're ready to understand a paradigm shift. Because a paradigm shift then is exactly what it says. It's a change in your paradigm. It's a shifting of it. In other words, though at one time you saw something one way, now because your paradigm has shifted, you see it another. The same event... But your perspective, your paradigm has changed. And so something drastic happens that usually shakes our present paradigm. Something jars it or knocks it off course. And now we have a new paradigm of understanding the exact same event before us now. And it's called a paradigm shift. If you're at all hazy on this, listen to a story that Covey tells of just a simple everyday event in which he experienced one of these shifts. He says, I remember a mini paradigm shift I experienced one Sunday morning on a subway in New York City. People were sitting quietly, some reading newspapers, some lost in thought, some resting with their eyes closed. It was a calm and peaceful scene. Then suddenly a man and his children entered the subway car. The children were so loud and rambunctious that instantly the whole climate changed. The man sat down next to me and closed his eyes, apparently oblivious to the situation. The children were yelling back and forth, throwing things, even grabbing people's newspapers. It was very disturbing, and yet the man sitting next to me did nothing. It was difficult not to feel irritated. I could not believe that he could be so insensitive as to let his children run wild like that and do nothing about it, taking no responsibility at all. It was easy to see that everyone else on the subway felt irritated too. So finally, with what I felt was unusual patience and restraint, I turned to him and said, Sir, your children are really disturbing a lot of people. I wonder if you couldn't control them a little more. Covey says the man lifted his gaze as if to come into a consciousness of the situation for the first time, and he said softly, Oh, you're right. I guess I should do something about it. We just came from the hospital where their mother died an hour ago. I don't know what to think, and I guess they don't know how to handle it either. Covey says, can you imagine what I felt at that moment? My paradigm shifted. Suddenly I saw things differently, and because I saw differently, I thought differently, I felt differently, I behaved differently. He says, my irritation vanished. I didn't have to worry about controlling my attitude or behavior. My heart was filled with this man's pain. Feelings of sympathy and compassion flowed freely. Your wife just died. I'm so sorry. Can you tell me about it? What can I do to help? He says, everything changed in an instant. It's a paradigm shift, folks. Something happens in our lives, big or small, that causes us to change the way that we perceive and understand the event happening before us. And at this point, you might be wondering, well, thanks, Jamie, for that bit of human interest knowledge, but what does it have to do with Easter? And what does it have to do with the resurrection of the church or even my spiritual life? And the answer is this, everything. Because folks, what I believe happened on that For that small group of women that Christina read about earlier on that very first Easter morning was nothing less than one of the biggest paradigm shifts to ever hit humankind. It's true. As we unpack the story here in just a minute, what I hope to show you is that these women went in with one particular paradigm of their entire spiritual world and their personal world, and they left that empty tomb, paradigm changed. Their paradigm shifted. And it wasn't just for them, but it's been happening now, this same paradigm shift for thousands, hundreds of thousands, billions of people ever since then. And so, like, check this out. Shortly after these few women experienced this paradigm shift that we're going to unpack in a minute, the 12 disciples, you remember them, they experienced this same paradigm shift, and it rocked their world. And then the Bible tells us that a little bit while after that, that about 100 people experienced this shift in their paradigm, and their lives were never the same. And then you remember the story about a week after this event, or a little bit longer, there was the day of Pentecost in which 3,000 people underwent a paradigm shift like this. And it tells us that Jerusalem and the outlying areas were never the same again. And down through the centuries, this simple but profound paradigm shift has been the cause of nations rising and falling. It's been the foundation of every great civilization, including Western Europe, the United States, Canada, and many other places. And most personally, it's a paradigm shift that has caused literally billions of people to completely change their spiritual and personal view of reality as they thought they knew it to alter the course of their lives. And like that little group of women on that very first Easter Sunday to go from despair and emptiness to hope and fullness almost overnight. It's a paradigm shift of uh, just untold magnitude. And it happened on Easter morning, and it's all about hope. And now, to show you this this morning, I need you to turn to your Bibles, if you brought one, to Luke chapter 24. We're basically going to park there for the rest of our time this morning. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, that's okay. We've included the scripture on the back of your outline in the bulletin. We're also going to put it up here on the screen for you. And I want to walk you through the Easter event through the eyes of three women. Can we do that? Through the eyes of these three women. And I want to show you in detail this paradigm shift that they went through. Now, if you remember earlier the story that was read to you, it tells us in verse 10 that the three primary players here are who? Mary Magdalene, Joanna, and Mary the mother of James. And some of you are saying right now, well, who are they? I have no idea who they are. Well, we don't know a lot about these women, but they are mentioned a few other times in the gospel stories, and so we know three things about them that will be important for you as we move on. First is that we know that Jesus had a very strong spiritual and personal effect on these women. In other words, he had brought a lot of physical healing to their lives, spiritual healing to their lives, and it had quite an effect on these ladies. Secondly, we know that these were women of some influence and standing in their culture. Especially Joanna. The gospel tells us that she was the wife of Cusa, a manager of Herod's house. Herod was the king of Judea at that time. And then thirdly, we know then obviously that they were devout followers and supporters of Jesus. And so please see more than anything else, this is important for where we're going, that these were not just casual friends of Jesus, but that these ladies were deeply affected by him and had pinned a lot of their spiritual and personal hopes upon him. And if you're at all familiar with Palm Sunday, what we celebrate a week before Easter leading up to the crucifixion, you know that this last week, what we celebrate as Holy Week, was a week of terrible confusion and disillusionment for most of the followers of Jesus, right? In other words, track where they went this week. They came into the week putting palms down for Jesus and saying, you know, the king is here, isn't this exciting? because they really thought that Jesus was going to bring the consummation of Israel and set up shop in Jerusalem and take over the world and and to put an end to all the shenanigans. And so they were all excited that the king was now here. And then the week culminates, as many of you know, with the arrest, trial, crucifixion, death, and burial of Jesus and the scattering of all of his followers. A bummer to say the least. And so because Mary Magdalene, Magdalene, Joanna, and the other Mary were part of following Jesus here, we got to believe that on this Easter morning they were likewise confused, despairing, and dismayed. And the reason that this is so important for us to see is that you're going to notice, and you don't want to miss this, that the story begins with these ladies simply stuck in their paradigm. That's the first thing I need you to see. They were stuck in their paradigm. It says there in verse 1 of Luke 24 that on the first day of the week, which would have been Sunday back then, Saturday was the Sabbath, Sunday was the first week, that at early dawn they came to the tomb bringing the spices which they had prepared. Now pause there. And notice two things here to fully grasp the paradigm that these women had. And first notice that it tells us that they came to the tomb. In other words, they came to the place where they knew and were sure that the dead Jesus would be. In their minds, he was dead. There was no rational reason for them to think otherwise, no changing this and no going back. I mean, people go to cemeteries and mausoleums all the time and for one purpose and one purpose only, to remember, mourn, and pay respects for the dead. And it was no different back then. They were going to the tomb of Jesus. And then secondly, if you're not convinced, notice that they were carrying spices with them, right? And you're saying, what's that about? Well, this was before the days of sophisticated embalming techniques. And so the way that they embalmed, again, a dead body was through spices. They had an elaborate process. And this was the last stage of preparing the body for decomposition by using some heavy spices to place upon the body. And so they were coming with spices, once again emphasizing their paradigm that Jesus was dead, gone for good. And they were treating him like any other dead person trying to give him a decent burial. Don't miss, folks, this was their paradigm. And they were stuck in it. And please don't forget that it was a paradigm of despair, grieving, hopelessness, and confusion based upon what they thought Jesus was going to do for them. Now, Hang on to this, and then also notice that things begin to change quickly as we go into the second phase here, what I call their paradigm getting shaken. You're going to like this. Their paradigm gets shaken. Look at what it says in verses 2 to 4. It says they found the stone rolled away from the tomb, but when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus, and it happened that while they were perplexed about this. (laughs) So these three ladies and others not mentioned here, got to the tomb. And when they got there, obviously the stone was rolled away. Tombs back then, as you all know, were carved in rock, caves and rocks. And the body was then laid into it and a huge stone rolled in front of it. That's how they buried people there. And when they got there, this stone was moved aside. And further, the body was gone. The dead body that their paradigm told them would be there was not there. And then interestingly, the text says that they were perplexed. And I would submit to you that that's probably the minimalist word Luke could have used to describe how they felt, right? It's fascinating. That word perplexed in the original Greek language that the Bible was written in literally means to be astounded. I mean to be blown away with the event before them. It'd be kind of like if you went out to the parking lot here after the service today and went to you where you knew your car was and it wasn't there. If I came up, put my hand in and said, wow, kind of perplexed, aren't you? You'd be going, well, yeah, like to say the least. I mean, that's how you would feel, right? I I mean, multiply that by about a 100 or a 1,000 times because that's what was at stake here. And that's what these ladies were starting to feel. Please see, folks. Their paradigm was getting shaken. No longer were they filtering this scene with the same assumptions and model that they were just moments before. And yet before it gets wetter, better, it gets worse because if these things shook their paradigms, then what happens next utterly destroyed them. This is the paradigm destroyed. Look at verses 4 to 5. It says, and it happened... That while they were perplexed about this, behold, two men suddenly stood near them in dazzling apparel, and as the women were terrified and bowed their faces to the ground. Now, we know from reading the other three Gospels of Jesus' resurrection that these two men were actually angels sent by God. John and Matthew tells us this. And we know, and I like how Luke tells us this, that their appearance was not normal, right? It says that they had dazzling apparel, or as the NIV translation says, that they gleamed like lightning. And so just note that this wasn't Clarence from It's a Wonderful Life, right? I mean, this was not John Travolta from that movie Angels. I mean, that's not what was happening here. These people were scary looking, and they terrified these women here. And what you and I need to wrestle with is why. I mean, God could have appeared to them in any form or any fashion to give them this news. Why in such a scary way? And folks, what I believe is going on here is that these angels appear to these women like this so that they, so they might totally blow away what was left of their ailing paradigm. I mean, it only makes sense to appear to these women in this type of awesome and spectacular way had the power to kick out The remaining vestiges that they still might be clinging to so that a new paradigm can take place here, which we're going to see in just a minute. And simply notice that it worked because it says these women were terrified and they bowed their faces to the ground. Paradigm destroyed. They were utterly ready to receive a new one. And as a quick side note, just please know that sometimes God does that in our lives, doesn't he? Sometimes God allows scary and terrifying things to come into our lives because he wants to kick out some of our paradigms so that we're ready to receive a new one. Some of you have experienced that in your lives. You've told me stories of how you've gone through scary, if not difficult, circumstances in which later you realize that God was front and center in all of them, doing something to shake your world and change the way that you respond to the things around you. And that's exactly what he did for these three women that first Easter Sunday morning. And so now and only now, in a way that only God could do, because he's been doing it for thousands of years, it is this point that the tables begin to turn, and the new paradigm begin to, begins to set in. The new paradigm sets in. And I love how it begins with a question <laughs> from the angel. He says, why do you seek the living from among the dead? And you got to believe they're thinking, the living? What do you mean the living? And then the angel says those famous words that we repeat on Easter Sunday. He's not here, but he has risen. And Matthew adds that the angel even said, hey, come here, see the place that he used to be lying at. And so you got to believe, folks, that the empty space in their understanding, where the old paradigm used to be but no longer was, was struggling to comprehend exactly what had happened here. And then the angel deals the winning card. He strikes the final blow when he says this. He says, remember how he spoke to you while he was still in Galilee. Remember, the Son of Man said that he must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified and on the third day rise again. And what you don't want to miss, folks, is that right at that precise moment, these ladies' paradigm shifted. Because verse 8 says, and they remembered his words. I mean, it was like a light went on in their head. They said, we get it. That's right. He did say that. He said he was going to be risen from the dead, and he is. He is. He's alive. And at that point, everything changes in this story. I mean, everything as we're going to see takes off from this point. And you might be wondering right now, well, Jamie, come on. I mean, how could they forget such a powerful and radical claim? I mean, it's not like he said he was going to be arrested and somehow creatively escape. I mean, he told them he was going to be arrested, killed, and then raised from the dead. I mean, how could they forget that? And, folks, the answer is simple. Don't ever forget the power of a paradigm. I mean, don't ever forget that the grids that you and I use on the world around us have been cemented this childhood. And for somebody that has never had a paradigm to compute power or victory over death, that dead people rise again, they're not going to believe it just because of a few words. They're going to believe it when they experience that for themselves. And yet, please also see, and this is the point, that when paradigms actually do get shifted, when the paradigm of Jesus being dead and their Savior being gone shifted for Mary and her friends, when the light did come on and they realized that he really was risen from the dead, it created such a sense of hope in them that it totally changed their demeanor. I mean, Matthew shares with us in his account that with great joy, they literally ran back to the disciples. You can almost picture it, right? I mean, dropping the spices there, shedding those heavy grave clothes or those morning clothes that they were in, and just literally sprinting back to where the disciples were. I mean, they just ran back to them and they told Peter, and Peter said, Ah, what are you kidding? Come on. And here's a bunch of emotionally involved ladies. He didn't rise from the dead. Peter goes to check it out for himself, and sure enough, he gets perplexed, and then the other things, and, and then finally he, he gets it, and his paradigm is shifted. And more than anything else, what was alive now in the souls of all these people that experienced that, don't miss this, was hope. And that's the whole point of the Easter message, is that there's hope. You see, people, for those of us who make this paradigm shift for our lives today, there is incredible, soul-reviving, life-giving hope that's waiting for us. It's true. And before you underestimate the profundity of hope, please realize that hope is one of the most powerful human and divine motivators that we can have. You know it and I know it. All of us have been hardwired since creation to run and live on hope. And whenever we experience hope, everything now is different. I mean, hope gives us a sense that there is something on the horizon that is better than what we have now. And so as a pastor, I love, I don't love to see this, but when I see people stuck in marriages, I love to see the fact that when they start to get some hope that their marriage can be all, did I say that people were stuck in marriages? What I meant was stuck in like downhill marriages. (laughs) My wife is here today, honey. Marriage is a wonderful thing to be stuck in. Anyways, but when they're stuck in marriages that are, how do you redeem this one? The marriages that are going downhill, right? They, They start to get hope. And some of you have been there. You start to get hope that maybe my marriage can be what God wants it to be. And it's that glimmer of hope that starts to turn things around. Or how about any of you have studied, struggled with anxiety or depression? You know that hope allows you to see beyond the here and now to a better tomorrow, one that won't be as despairing as today. And then you experience that, and it changes everything. You see, hope tells us that what we're experiencing And admired in today is not the be-all or end-all of our existence, but that there is much more and that it can be much better. Hope gets us through the mundane and painful experiences of life, and it focuses us on the horizon where there is help and healing available. I mean, you know this. Hope is one of the greatest friends that our soul has. And please hear this. The resurrection of Jesus is all about hope. In fact, it would not be hyperbolic to say that the resurrection of Jesus is our hope. I mean, it's the hope that we have as followers of Jesus. It's what we pin everything on because the resurrection of Jesus screams to us that we now have hope. And so in getting down to the short strokes this morning, let me share with you three primary ways that the resurrection of Jesus brings hope to our lives right now with everything that you and I are experiencing as 21st century postmodern people, and the first thing is simply this, the resurrection of Jesus brings hope to our spiritual lives. Did you know that it brings hope to our spiritual lives? Let me ask you a leading question. Do you realize that without the resurrection of Jesus, we would have no hope of eternal life? Did you know that? And I mean no forgiveness of sin, no restored relationship with God. In other words, there'd be a huge gap between us on one side and God on the other, if there is no resurrection. And the reason is simple, that the resurrection of Jesus proved his power over death. It proved who he said he was, namely God come in the flesh and the one who could only adequately deal with our sin problem. If you're not convinced, listen to how Paul the apostle would say this years later in reflecting back on this resurrection of Jesus. Look at 1 Corinthians 15. He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is worthless and you are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ, meaning died, have perished. If we have hoped only in Christ, then we are in this we have hoped in Christ in this life only, we are of all men most to be pitied. But now Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of all those who have died or are asleep. I mean, don't miss this, folks. We have spiritual hope today because of the resurrection. We have hope that we can know God intimately and personally as a child knows his or her father. We have hope that there isn't one sin that you have committed, that you are committing, that you're going to commit, that can ever keep you from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. We have hope that God's grace is forever available to anyone who cries out and asks for it anyone here in this auditorium over in one of our venues in phoenix and scottsdale in arizona in the united states across the entire world i mean grace is now extended to anybody and everybody who will come to believe in this jesus who rose from the dead and probably most touching to me is that we now have hope that god is never ever going to give up on you spiritually when it comes to knowing and being found by him we have this hope all because of the resurrection of Jesus. Our paradigm of God is forever changed. And now, not only this, but notice a second way that the resurrection of Jesus brings hope to our lives today. And that is that the resurrection of Jesus brings hope to our personal and spiritual lives as well. I mean, I'm sorry, our personal and relational lives as well. And some of you are saying right now, well, come on, Jamie. I mean, you're a pastor, so of course you're going to say it brings hope to our spiritual lives. What do you mean our, our personal and relational life? I mean, how can the resurrection of a guy 2,000 years ago affect me in my Monday through Saturday world now in the 21st century? And that's a great question. And I want to show you how this works because I find even many Christians don't get this quite today. Hey, look at 2 Corinthians 13, verse 4. It's a passage kind of tucked away in the Corinthians here. Most people don't quote this very often. And yet it's profound when it links the resurrection of Jesus to our lives today. Look at what it says. It says, for indeed he, meaning Jesus, was crucified because of weakness, yet he lives because of the power of God. For we also are weak in him, yet we shall live with him because of the power of God directed toward you. Now, don't miss what it's saying there. It's a syllogism, it's linking two things together there in parallel fashion. It first says that, that Christ was crucified in weakness, right? We know that. God became a man, that's a sign of weakness. Not just a man, but a servant, sign of weakness. And then he suffered as a servant, more sign of weakness. He was crucified in weakness. But then it says that God raised him through his power. And that word power there is the Greek word dunamis that we get our English word dynamite from. Get the picture? God says when Jesus came out of the grave, he exploded that God's power, that dynamite power, raised him from the dead. We all get that. But then notice that he links this to you and to me. Don't miss that. He says, and we also are weak. Can you own that today? I mean, we also struggle in our lives. Even the most manly among us gets to the end of our rope at times. We get lonely. We get depressed. We get discouraged. We confront things that we just can't seem to handle on our own strength. He's saying, we also are weak. And then he says, but we can live by the power, there's that word again, Of God toward us. So put it together, the same power, mentioned twice there, that rose Jesus from the dead, dunamis power, is the same power, God says, that He wants to give you and me now in our weakness as we follow Him and believe in this resurrection of His Son Jesus Christ. Isn't that amazing? And so bring this down to the Monday through Saturday living that you experience when it comes to your marriage, your friendships, your job, your working relationships, your finances, your kids, even all your lost hopes and dreams and your messed up emotions. We have a living hope in the resurrection of Jesus that he's going to give us power to deal with these things. We talk about this all the time here at Scottsdale Bible Church. The fact that because of the living hope we have in Christ, we now have tons of resources, to live life effectively, spiritually and relationally, right where God has planted us. So, his resurrection changes our paradigm on spirituality. We now have hope in our spiritual lives. His resurrection changes our paradigm when it comes to our personal and relational lives. We now have hope on that level. And then notice lastly, and this is so cool, that the resurrection of Jesus brings hope to a lost and hopeless world. And so it's not just our lives, like, like if we're speaking selfishly, that the resurrection affects. But the Bible tells us the resurrection affects your neighbor, your coworker, your friends, your family, those around you that don't quite have the hope that you have yet. Look at how Peter would communicate this to us in his first letter, chapter one, verse three. He says, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now get this, who according to his great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. You know, that phrase, born again, freaks people out. You ever notice that in culture today? Like if you say to somebody, you know, what are you? I'm a born again Christian. Whoa, back off, dude. I mean, that's just the way that a lot of people function, right? And and part of that is because of the whole born again movement out of the 1970s and all of that. But, But it's unfortunate in one sense because the Bible, of all places, is the one that coined that phrase born again. And you all just saw it in black and white there. And it doesn't need to freak us out because all the phrase means is that you were born the first time from your mother's womb physically and that the Bible says you can come to a point in your life where you are born spiritually into a life-giving relationship with Almighty God. Right? So born again, this time on a spiritual level. It simply means you come to a point in your life where you recognize your separation from God, your desire for intimacy with Him and eternal life, and through His Son Jesus You come into a relationship with him. And yet notice that Peter is writing here to a bunch of already convinced people. (laughs) In other words, he's telling people who are already born again. And and so why is he doing that? I think it's because they have lots of neighbors and lots of friends that he's kind of saying, hint, hint, the resurrection of Jesus was also for them so that they might too be born anew. And you're a carrier, the Bible says, of that message. And, And so just simply realize that the resurrection of Jesus gives hope to a lost and hopeless world truly folks when you think about it this resurrection gives hope on all levels to our lives you can't escape it I want to wrap up today by reading you a story I think you're all going to like John Ortberg is just a great author and he wrote a book a few years ago called love beyond reason and he tells a story in here that's going to lead us right up to where we are right now with this idea of a resurrection you ready for this He says, Warren Bennis once wrote about a promising junior executive at IBM who was involved in a risky venture for the company and ended up losing $10 million in the gamble. He was called into the office of Tom Watson Sr., the founder and leader of IBM for 40 years, a business legend. The junior exec, overwhelmed with guilt and fear, blurted out as soon as he walked into the office, I guess you've called me in for my resignation. Here it is, I resign. Watson replied, You must be joking. I just invested $10 million educating you. I can't afford your resignation. (laughs) Orberg goes on to say, I imagine Peter must have had this conversation with Jesus on a regular basis. Peter made his famous confession that Jesus was the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus called him blessed and said that this had been revealed to Peter by God himself and went on to explain that it was necessary for Jesus to go to the cross. When Peter took him aside then and began to rebuke him for this, it's bad for morale, Jesus, Jesus told him that Peter was now speaking the words of Satan. Ortberg says, I can imagine Peter saying, you're right about me, Jesus. I speak impulsively. I'm always putting my foot in my mouth. Here's my resignation. And I imagine Jesus saying, you must be joking. I just invested a revelation in you. I can't afford your resignation. On the Sea of Galilee, Peter hops out of the boat, begins to walk on water, but he takes his eyes off Jesus. He's overwhelmed by fear and doubt and would have drowned had not Jesus bailed him out. Jesus diagnoses his problem acutely, you have little faith. Orbrick says, I imagine Peter saying, you're right about me, Jesus. I'm big on dramatic gestures, but I don't trust very well. Inside, I'm full of questions and fears, and it doesn't take much of a storm to stop me. Here's my resignation. He says, I can almost hear Jesus saying, you must be joking. I've just invested a miracle in you. I can't afford your resignation. Peter said, at the great crisis of Jesus' life, I'll follow you no matter how much it costs, no matter what everybody else does. But he could not follow for one night. He denied his best friend three times. I imagine Jesus or Peter saying, You were right about me all along, Jesus. I failed you most completely at your point of greatest need. I denied and abandoned you. Here's my resignation. And I can almost hear Jesus saying, You must be joking. I've just invested a resurrection in you. I can't afford your resignation. You know, I think most of us, if we're honest with ourselves, feel like Peter... At least some, if not much of the time in our lives, right? I mean, it's just so hard to get our act together. we put on a good show. We come to church, we put on our nice digs, and we are nice to everybody, and we're great in our professional worlds and all that. But I find that most of us, when, when you get someone alone at a cup of coffee or just in an honest session, will admit that there's some pretty significant areas of our lives in which we feel like we're pretty much messing up. And God sees all that. He knows that. And if you could all relate to that, you know that there are plenty of times where you're just very tempted or maybe you've already said it to God, here's my resignation. I mean, you've got to want it, God. I mean, you're perfect and I can't seem to get my act together right. Here's my resignation. And I think the resurrection screams to us today, I can't afford your resignation. I've invested a resurrection in you. If you don't hear anything else here today, please hear that There's hope the resurrection says to us no matter where you are in your spiritual journey he died for you and God rose him from the dead for you and so if you're a seeker here today somebody who maybe doesn't go to church very often and doesn't really even have all that much of a relationship with God you need to know that my prayer for you has been this whole week and even up through today that, that God would just have his way with your heart and mind today that his wind as John 3 tells us would be blowing in your life the spirit of his wind would be blowing and uh, that he might be drawing you to himself. And I hope that you either go to a Tell Me More table or that you come back next week when we talk about God and the economy in our next series and that you allow us to be a part of your spiritual journey where we might be able to help you find what you're looking for. Because a lot of us here, though we don't ever act together, have found incredible hope, meaning, and purpose in a relationship with Jesus Christ. And and then there's others of you who have been maybe veteran believers for a while and you've walked with Christ for a long time. But you know that there's still areas of your life that that you don't even want anybody to know about. You know that you struggle to. What my prayer for you has been is that this day would scream to you, just like all the rest of us, that there's hope. That he doesn't take your resignation because he's invested a resurrection in you and he's never going to let you go. His grace, his love, and his truth are that powerful. There's a lot to be excited about today, folks. He has risen is risen indeed. Why don't you bow and pray with me? Our Heavenly Father, we thank you that once again we open up the stories in your book, the historical accounts, and our lives are filled with hope. Our lives are filled with truth. Even at times our lives are filled with conviction, but it's conviction that draws us to you. So Father, if I don't miss my guess, there's not one person here today, because we're hardwired this way, that doesn't desire more hope, more joy, more meaning, more purpose in our lives. We're, just, we're made to run on that fuel. And God, I thank you that what we're celebrating here today, this resurrection of our Savior, of God incarnate Jesus, just breathes to us hope. So God, I pray just very simply but profoundly that you would breathe hope into our lives. And may this day just not be another trite day of going to church and hearing the same old, same old, but a day where truly we might experience that shift in our paradigms as we view you now differently, as a God of all hope. We thank you that you speak these things to us. We thank you that you are absolutely capable of delivering on this. We pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. Amen. i So check this out. There's a, a, a devotional writer, actually an academic writer I, I've read over the years by the name of Frederick Beekner. His family was a, probably a third-generation immigrant from uh, wherever, Western Europe somewhere. And uh, he's just a great Christian writer. And, and I love something he said a while back. Look up here on the screen. He said, To come together as people who believe that just maybe this gospel is actually true should be to come together like people who have just won the Irish sweepstakes. Isn't that great? I mean, think about it, folks. Uh, You guys will go to a Cardinals game, and if they win, then you're going to go crazy, right? I mean, you're going to scream like Americans can only scream. Or you go to a Diamondbacks game, and if they win, you scream like only people can scream. You go to a rock concert, and you get all excited, you scream. But then we come to church, and we're kind of like this, right? And that's okay. I mean, sometimes okay to be like this. You know, church is kind of somber and reflective at times. But do we all understand that there's also times that church is supposed to be like this? That you're supposed to walk out and everything in you, every bone is supposed to be so excited that you just want to go, yes! Yes, that's the way church should be sometimes. And I would submit to you that just maybe Easter Sunday with a resurrection is exactly how we need to end church. And so here's what I want us to do. Are you ready for this? I mean, the 11 o'clock crowd tends to not be this way, so I need you guys to dig deep, all right? And and, and what I need you to do is that in just a minute, I'm going to say, he is risen. And traditionally, the way we respond to he is risen is with he is risen indeed. And when I say he is risen, I want you guys to respond with he is risen indeed in such a way that the Cardinals just had a touchdown, okay? I, I mean, Jesus is risen from the dead. So let's show God what you got? You ready? He is risen.
1: He is risen. Yes! Yes! Awesome.